Hello, I'm Michael Geary, and this is the EU History Podcast. European empires are collapsing, the Cold War is in full swing, a bipolar world has emerged. Europe is divided into two blocks, a significant efforts are afoot by six European states to forge ahead with plans to develop closer economic and political integration, the forerunner to the present day European Union. The 1950s is our starting point for this episode of the EU History Podcast, as we dive into the fascinating world of French imperial decline, Algeria's search for independence, and an answer to the rather controversial question raised by my guest today of whether Algeria, and not Britain, was the first country to leave the European Union. Algeria was under French control for about 130 years, until its independence after a referendum in 1962. By this time, France had been a central member in the European Coal and Steel Community and the European Economic Community, two organisations created in the 1950s to tame the worst excesses of the nation-state. What was Algeria's status vis-à-vis the European integration process until it gained freedom from France? And once it gained independence, how can we best understand Algerian-Brussels relations after 1962? To help bring some clarity to the world of this delicious complexity, I'm joined today by historian Dr. Megan Brown from Swarthmore College in the United States and the author of the recently published book, The Seventh Member State, Algeria, France and the European Community, published by Harvard University Press. Megan Brown, welcome to the EU History Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. Let's start with how um, you ended up researching Algeria, France, and the integration world of the 1950s. Yeah, when I so this book was based on um, my dissertation project, although it certainly looks quite different than that. But when I set out to um, to conduct early archival research for my dissertation, I was actually really interested in Algeria's settler community. And what I thought was particularly interesting as I started to go through particularly um, archives in departmental um, departmental archives. So for example, the Boucheron archives uh, located in Marseille was finding that French officials were writing memos about how to prepare for the arrival of French citizens leaving Morocco and then leaving uh, Tunisia and Algeria. And they were looking at the examples of, for example, how West Germany dealt with the arrival of Sudetenland Germans and how Britain dealt with the arrival of British citizens who left Egypt. And I thought that that European lesson learning was really, really exciting. But then in these same files, as I dug into that, I was finding these strange references to just Algeria and integrated European institutions. And happily, my advisors let me know that I had two projects on my hand and I had to pick one. (laughs) And I realized that this question of what Algeria was doing being mentioned and then being really debated or agonized over in these documents about European institutions um, was just a, a really exciting question and one that I was curious to go further on. Um, and I guess you also had a very good French teacher, or you you were you were able to to pick up the French language pretty pretty easily, I guess. I started learning French as a middle school student, which for non-U.S. listeners, um, I started learning around when I was 13 or 14. I was not a very serious student about it, despite having some really excellent and engaging teachers. Um, but I did continue through high school, and then. Um, 
I studied abroad in Paris as a university student. It was a English language program because my French at the time was not good enough, but I lived with a host family um, and they were so warm and welcoming and they included two teenage daughters um, who spoke so quickly <laughs> that I was forced to really learn quite rapidly <laughs> just to keep up with family dinner conversation. And so that entry of my host family, and then I lived in France a couple of years after graduating and before starting my PhD, um, really got me up to a confident level for <laughs> the archival uh, experience. I think what you need to explain probably first is the relationship that Algeria has, the status of Algeria, because when you read this book, it just jumps off the page, the complexity of the relationship um, between Algeria and France over time. And because this, 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 the status of the relationship matters when we start building EU institutions in the 50s or community institutions in the 50s, and then it becomes complicated. So what is the relationship? Yeah, so Algeria and France have a really complicated and um, not stagnant juridical relationship to one another following um, the start of France's occupation of Algeria, um, which begins in 1830. Um, and then what they call the pacification campaign actually lasts in some spaces for decades. Um, but France, only a few decades into that occupation, when, when much of it has been deemed successful, French officials decide to govern Algeria um, I should say the northern portions of Algeria, so the portions that border the Mediterranean, not the Saharan portions of, the, of Algeria, they'll govern it as départements, so departments, and depart departments, that is the administrative structure for metropolitan or, you know, so-called European France as well. So the idea is that administratively, these parts of Algeria are akin to, say, bouche de Rhone, where I mentioned I did archival work, or, you know, uh, Paris's department, things like that. What that meant was that there was a civilian um, administrative structure in part in Algeria. It did not translate into citizenship rights for the vast majority of uh, Algerian people. So fast forward to after World War II, the French administration makes a lot of changes to how they administer the French empire writ large, a lot of reforms. And this means that when the French are approaching negotiations for the Treaty of Paris, first for the ECSC, but then certainly for the Treaty of Rome, creating the, the EEC, they are able to claim that Algeria is simply a part of France because it has for quite a long time held this administrative status as being département rather than colonies. Um, and more generally, they have this sort of fluid ability to claim that certain spaces of the French empire are not colonies, but are something much more closely akin to France itself, which would then give them the space in, you know, in legal language to make particular claims um, for how those places might relate to or be owed particular rights or regulations vis-a-vis -vis European institutions. Empires are crumbling, right? They are they are falling slowly but surely. But the colonial powers in Europe are almost they're looking at ways to try to maintain some semblance of empire under a, a different guise. The British Commonwealth is one. And in your book you talk about this restructuring of empire in the case of France and the concept of your Africa. So in short, 
what are the French up to in the 1950s in terms of the restructuring of their empire? Yeah, so the term Your Africa um, has a quite a long and, and interesting history. It really um, dates in popularity to the interwar period. And as a and sort of ideology, it's a geopolitical concept where supporters of this idea claim that Europe and Africa either sort of spiritually or even physically are a fused continent with the Mediterranean as an interior lake. Before World War II and before the racism of Nazism becomes so embarrassing and, and sort of impossible to repeat after the war ends, but in the interwar period, Europeans place themselves firmly at the head of your Africa. Um, after World War II and in this period of European integration, sort of strikingly, the, the term continues to be quite popular in part because its main, um, some of its main thinkers from the interwar were, were their own books were burned by the Nazis. So they sort of, the term survives the war and the French make a transition from talking about Europeans at the helm of a Africa to Africa as a brotherhood of cooperation between Europeans and Africans. A lot of the goals are still the same. The idea of alleviating European competition about the empire, about sort of having a shared um, responsibility in Africa, um, although again, that language sort of shifts from being civilizational to being developmental, but now they're also calling on Africans themselves to be involved. And, and it aligns quite nicely with rhetoric coming out of France, which in administrative terms is no longer saying that they have an empire, rather now there's this reconstruction of a French union and then the Fifth Republic will become the French community. And this idea of sharing responsibility then also falls to Africans within the French union, the idea that there's going to be further citizenship rights, more sort of you know buy-in for people living in Africa as being part of um, a, a greater France, a term that is also used at the time. But what that actually means for people living in these spaces, including Algeria, it's it's much more debatable whether they're seeing you know the sorts of benefits of citizenship we would expect. Does the rhetoric on Euro Africa change, or or and or how far does European integration feed into that narrative or that rhetoric? So on Euro Africa, so does European integration now have a role to play in somehow restructuring the French Empire? So I would say that generally, and I wouldn't date it to the emergence of the Fifth Republic, but explicitly using the term Africa, it fades. It fades, um, even though it's used after World War II, it fades in use. But I think that that ideological, there's like ideological residue in the sorts of choices um, and claims that French officials are making. I think and I, I mean, I'm not sure that I'm so loud about it in the book, but I think that something important that I found in the archives is that although the Fourth and Fifth Republic are are very different, and the people, you know, at the helm are very different um, when we're looking at France, I see a lot of continuity between the Fourth and the Fifth Republic when looking at, in particular, how French officials are approaching what to do about empire in the context of the EEC. There's really valuable work by Véronique Dimier that I think helps to explain this because she writes about 
a recycling of uh, bureaucrats who had had posts in um, the French Empire and and other uh, other Europeans as well um, in their own uh, colonial administrations, and then they transfer to Brussels. So I think that although elected officials look quite different and the, the men, and it's really is men in the case of France that they're surrounding themselves with are different, the, the people operating in the sort of mid-level bureaucratic roles remain the same, right? Not everybody changes with a regime change. And so I, it leads to a situation of a lot of continuity of those goals. What I think does change really notably is that the Algerian war intensifies in the late 1950s. The Algerian war and its intensification and the start of it being unpopular and seemingly almost unbearable to the metropolitan French populace, that is a huge part of the history. I and mean, that is the history of the fall of the Fourth Republic and the emergence of the Fifth Republic. And that changes the trajectory of how the French are going to make claims about Algeria in Brussels. And that that war and that collapse of the Fourth French Republic coincides with negotiations to really take European integration to the next level um, with the negotiations for the Treaty of Rome uh, in 1956-1957, culminating in the signing of the treaty in March of 1957. Those negotiations are fascinating from a number of different levels, not least the way in which the French try to, and successfully, include Algeria, specifically named, in the Treaty of Rome. And this is where your book gets complicated, but in a very good way, because of the attempts by France to put Algeria in? And what is so important for the French vis-a-vis Algeria within these negotiations? Is it access to oil, cheap labor? Is it trying to rubber stamp its tenuous or ambiguous hold on that territory? What is what why, what is the, the modus operandi of the French to do this? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of all of the above, right? And I think that's what makes it exciting and confusing <laughs> and ambiguous to be, to be looking at. So it's... It, in my book, I show that when it came to the coal and steel community negotiations, the French did not attempt to include Algeria in that treaty. And in fact, they actively pushed against the possibility that the ECSE treaty would in any way open Algeria to the other members of the six. That changes dramatically in the negotiations for the Treaty of Rome. Um, and in fact, at the start of those negotiations, the attitude that French officials have towards Algeria um, is different than the actual outcome of the negotiations. And I argue that that's because Algerian anti-imperial nationalists manage precisely during the moment of these negotiations. They themselves will go to the UN and succeed in having the so-called Algerian question discussed at the UN for the first time. And it's only a week later that the French say, we must name Algeria in the Treaty of Rome. So on the one hand, I think it's a very important space, right? It's a supranational venue where the French can put down in writing that Algeria is a part of France and receive the signatures of five European states who say, yes, it is a part of France. So there is a sort of um, ideological bent um, to it that's really a response to this UN intervention, or not in intervention is the wrong word, but this UN moment for Algerians. There are also really pragmatic economic and um, and political reasons to be making the claim. So oil, the, the reality that the French, even those who believe Algeria will not actually remain a part of France, there is no expectation that the very large settler community of Algeria will leave and not return. This is what actually happens, but that's not the expectation. So there's an expectation that even an independent Algeria would still have a large French 
citizenry, you know, now so-called expat community in it. Um, and that certainly the French business interests in Algeria would also remain. So those are other motivations for including Algeria in the Treaty of Rome, sort of securing those trade ties for this future French citizenry. Right. Um, and also by harnessing EEC development funds, the French are sure that they will be able to funnel more money into Algeria. Um, and this, they believe, will, will answer the anti-imperial nationalists' criticism with money that will solve the issues um, that they see as plaguing Algeria. And if these problems are solved, then there will be nothing more for the anti-imperial nationalists to be upset about. The war will end. Um, which to say the least is uh, too little, too late. There's certainly no interrogation on the part of the French about why after 130 years, this would be the moment that development projects would somehow actually be instituted in a meaningful way. But for all of these reasons, the French are making the claim that Algeria should be named in the Treaty of Rome. And while not all members of the six are delighted by this prospect, they agree and I argue that they agree because um, even for those member states that find it unsavory or threatening, like the Netherlands and like Italy, they've seen in the example of the failure of the European defense community that without France, there will not be forward motion in European integration. So they must accept France's conditions in order to see the signature on the treaty. And, right. and so we see that the EEC treaty indeed does name Algeria. But do, do you think from, from your research into the archives that the French and French officials, French negotiators really believe that uh, European money flowing into Algeria through these development funds, money that, are, that is going to go towards big capital projects is in some way going to tame anti-imperialist nationalist sentiment in Algeria, or are they simply just biding their time? And because, of course, there's also the Cold War dynamics going on here. There's a number of different elements here that kind of feed into French thinking. And I don't know how far the French are in a state of denial in terms of the, the, where Algeria is going to go. There is a war ongoing. They're, they are looking for independence. France is dragging them into the EEC in the hope that somehow this this exposure to Brussels might uh, make them think twice after 130 years. Yes, it's um, it's hard to unpack what these different, particularly mid-level bureaucrats are thinking, right? Mm. These are people who are not even necessarily signing the documents that they're typing or somebody is signing it who's not the person who actually wrote the document. Historians of the Algerian War have shown in, in um, studies of French public opinion and more how slow the realization of what would then become labeled as the inevitability of Algeria's independence, but that is not accurate, right? There's nothing in inevitable about winning a war, but there's a real slowness to realize that this is what is going to happen. Um, you know, sort of in the, the well-known formulation of Todd Shepard, an invention of decolonization. Mm -hmm. So I would say, you know, in 56 and even early 57, it is absolutely possible for French administrators to believe that Algeria will still have a relationship to France that exists in some sort of legal capacity. They might acknowledge that it will be different, that things will have to change, there might have to be more autonomy, um, but that doesn't mean that independence is how they view the only possible outcome or the likely possible outcome. 
And that makes their decision-making really hard to parse out. But I think that even sometimes down to the month, it's useful to be, you know, in that sort of minutia of the negotiations to realize how much they are not acknowledging what to us retrospectively looks like the writing on the wall. The other contexts certainly do matter. Um, Things like the Cold War, things like France that, although it is certainly, you know, through the ECSC and then the EEC showing tremendous signs of of a burgeoning um, you know, Franco-German friendship, but a France that joins the EEC without its empire, when I was calling it the French Union, is a France that joins the EEC not as the largest economy of the six. Um, so the sort of anxieties about who is the most powerful or influential or important member of the EEC and the anxiety that the EEC Um, needs to be a powerful force that is a sort of third way for Europe, so-called, between the U.S. and the USSR, that Europe united is still powerful and has a say, that is contingent in this view at this time on a Europe that's still bolstered by, you know, the vestiges of its empire. The Treaty of Rome is signed in March 57. The EEC begins work in January 1958. Does the EEC then treat... Algeria just like another region of a member state, or is it more complicated, not least because of the ongoing war? How does Algeria adapt then to effectively being inside in the European community? So, you know, I think people who are listening who who work on European institutions, this will be very familiar, but there's a there are major policies of delay built into the treaty and not just related to Algeria, but it happens that a lot of the um delay period for Algeria is meant to be um, to end in 1962, which uh, incidentally is the year that Algeria wins its independence. So um, in some ways, this very striking period of, you know, we could say 57 when the treaty is signed or 58 when it when it comes into effect until Algeria's independence in July of 62, that's the period when Europeans are actually charged with figuring out what it will look like, right? That the naming is one thing, but the actual execution that's left to be figured out after the treaty is signed. I found that after the signatures, you know, after the ink was dried, so to speak, French officials are less devoted to making sure that those regulations that they had stipulated would apply to Algeria are actually, you know, in preparation for implementation which makes me um, believe that the naming of Algeria is in some ways the more significant element of why they pushed for it to be in the treaty to begin with, rather than the potential economic benefits for debatably France or Algeria that would come with that um, naming. And also with the signature and then the foundation of the EEC, it opens the door for other um, members of the six to be more vocal about their discontent with this situation and their lack of enthusiasm at the idea that any of this might actually, you know, go into effect and make a some sort of difference for Algeria. So in some ways, very little happens in this period, but we do see debates about um, how tariffs and customs will be you know favorable for Algeria and there are certainly discussions about what state will owe um social security or family allocations to an Algerian worker 
who leaves Algerian soil and goes to work somewhere in the six that is not France. Um, but the French try to dismiss these, you know, and they're not hypotheticals, but they treat them as hypotheticals because they claim that, you know, most Algerian men will still seek out employment in France and not in the other members of the six. So that period of 58 to 62 is a period where it's not totally clear what the outcome actually was. There's discussion and there's also kind of ignoring the reality of the treaty in that time. And then, of course, as you say, we get to July 1962 and and then, of course, there is the independence referendum. But that's not the end of the story, right? That's not the end of the story in terms of Algeria's complicated, ambiguous relationship with uh, Brussels, with the Treaty of Rome, and with its rights and obligations under that treaty, despite it having uh, won independence. Yes. So in sixty, in July of 62, Algerians celebrate their independence. And, you know, one might expect that that would be the end of the story. But of course, there is this actual treaty naming Algeria explicitly as being, you know, within the geographic reach of the EEC. So in December of that same year, Algeria's first president, Ahmed Ben Bella, writes a, essentially a telegram to Brussels saying, hey, I'm going to be sending a negotiator to, to Brussels to sort out what uh, Algeria's relationship to the EEC is, given that we are named in the treaty. And I had to cut this from the book because I think only I found this to be so fantastic, but I had a very long section detailing how much debate went back and forth between the six about just literally how to reply to that telegram. And it wasn't, you know, let's think of a policy. It was like, should we send him an acknowledgement of receipt? Like, thank you, we we got your telegram. Should we have any any other information in that? Thank you, we got the telegram letter and on and on. And I think, you know, diplomatic archives can be really dry, but this was a moment where I could just envision everybody in the room squirming uncomfortably, you know, letting their cigarette ash out a little too far because they're distracted by how you know, awkward they feel the situation is, um, the anxiety is really palpable. But it signals that Algerian officials are well aware that they have this tool at their disposal. They don't quite know what they can do with it. Um, they have this tool at their disposal to make claims um, at, in Brussels that other newly independent states might not be able to make. And it shows in a way uh, that although they've just fought this eight-year war and have had many other things on their mind, they're also, you know, they have been well aware of the sort of diplomatic wrangling that the French have been doing, supposedly on their behalf, but clearly not. And now these Algerian officials are ready to take that same treaty language and use it now, they hope, to the benefit of independent Algeria. But it doesn't necessarily work like that because the domestic developments in Algeria, of course, throw a spanner in the works, right? So what I find very striking is that to Algerian officials, the EEC treaty is one of many possible avenues of international relations that they can pursue after independence. So they are never only in Brussels, only hoping to have relationships, uh, have a relationship with the EEC. They're forming bilateral relationships with some members of the EEC. And we can see this in the reality that in a way that is probably against EEC regulation, um, well before the 76 treaty that I write about that effectively does end that, you know, we might say special relationship or potential special relationship between the EEC and Algeria, the Dutch are already applying tariff rates to Algeria 
that reflected as being like a third state is the term, a third state like any other, while as West Germany is still offering tariffs that are much more preferential and in line with what the treaty language might suggest would be um, the obligation of, of the six um, to enact in Algeria. Algerians, for their part, they're exploring all sorts of other relationships. There's, um, you know, if we're thinking about independent Algeria, we have the history of the relationship and diplomacy just between North African states, particularly the Maghreb. We have the history of non-alignment and so much more. I found it really, you know, kind of exciting in the archives to, to locate it. And I know that historians of Algeria would find this to be obvious, but to me, it was really fascinating um, making a lot of trade agreements with, say, Bulgaria, um, mm. or, you know, looking to particular um, countries that are within the Warsaw Pact um, mm. as well. So they're working on these different configurations. And at the same time, Algerian officials are dealing with a decimated economy and, you know, a country that, you know, physically and psychologically is is rebuilding after an incredibly devastating war. Mm -hmm. um, and so the EEC offers the promise potentially of money, still development aid, mm -hmm. but it's not the only outlet that they are seeking. Mm -hmm. By, by the time we get to the uh, mid-1970s, where there is this agreement negotiated between Algeria and the EEC, uh, which kind of you know creates kind of a formal relationship. What I really loved about the book was the way in which both actually admittedly on the Algerian side and on the, the side of the European community, there is this sense of, you know, selective amnesia that, you know, Algeria was part of France, part of the acquis communautaire, ambiguously was connected to Algeria. Uh, for some member states, even after independence, that seemed to be still the case. But when we get to the uh, mid-70s and they're negotiating together, it's as if Algeria was never mentioned in the Treaty of Rome, which of course it still was. And they were just uh, negotiating a treaty with any ordinary non-member state uh, as if nothing ever happened. I thought that was just fascinating. It's certainly true that both the member states of the EEC and the EC then um, and Algerian politicians had their own motivations for, as you say, sort of an amnesia about this um, past reality. For Algerians, the war of independence is a war where they are saying, we are not French, we were never French. Right, that that is they're saying there's it's not. I mean, in in the language of some um, French people, particularly um, those sympathetic to the OAS, so the paramilitary right wing group um, fighting to keep Algeria as a part of France, the language is one of secession and civil war. But to the Algerians, it's not a civil war because a civil war means that one was part of the nation to begin with. So forgetting or um, rewriting Algeria's past as being a colony that gained independence rather than this really complicated history of, of legal status helps to redefine, you know, to clarify its independence rather than secession from France as being what its history was. And thus not being part of Europe could very much be part of that same history, right? If it wasn't France, it certainly is not Europe. And, and this is not a population claiming a French or a European identity um, as its sort of, you know, founding mythology. Um, and not just mythology, right, as its, as its founding story or history. Um, for the Europeans to forget, it's part of this really long and, to me, incredibly successful process of pretending that the history of European integration is empire stopped and then Europe began. And it's patently false. And even the most cursory glance at chronology shows that this is a silly idea. I mean, happily, my editor let me include a timeline in my book, which I think for 
American readers is helpful because we don't learn a lot about European integration um, unless we actively pursue it. Um, but I think more generally is just as a reminder that this is all happening simultaneously. There is no pivot from one to the other, despite um, various European statesmen declaring that there's a pivot. And I think that the rewriting and the amnesia helps to solidify the idea that there was one. And then there's like this even more enlightened Europe than before that is now looking to Europe itself and to its own populations as if that was a choice that Europeans made rather than an active wresting of power coming from um, former colonies and colonized people. Uh, we could talk for, forever about this wonderful book. Um, I really enjoyed reading it. It is a really wonderful addition to the canon of literature on history of European integration, but also on the 1950s and early 1960s. And you really just have uh, developed this wonderful narrative and this wonderful complicated history of French history, Algerian history, European community history, all intertwined and told in a really wonderful book. So thanks so much. Each podcast guest then gets asked a random question, <laughs> moving away from the world <laughs> of the book, uh, a random question from the Proust questionnaire. And uh, Megan Brown, here's yours. What is your greatest fear? Ah, <laughs> uh, hmm. I am an extrovert and a city person. So I would say that broadly, maybe its biggest fear slash biggest dislike is um, empty streets or the prospect of not being able to surround myself with friends and family. Uh, and I think that those are tied together. I find, um, you know, the quiet suburban street or God forbid, a rural atmosphere that many people love, I find very uh, unsettling. <laughs> And related to that, I think I just like having people around um, a lot. So, yes. Yeah, so me on a in a in a rural setting with with no one that I know nearby, maybe that would be the greatest fear. <laughs> well, and you're you're in the wonderful city of Philadelphia, so you're surrounded by by wonderful things. Yes. <laughs> Dr. Megan Brown, historian and author of the Seventh Member State: Algeria, France, and the European Community. Thank you for being my guest today. I'm Michael Geary. This is the EU History Podcast. Thank you for listening.